On the Vanguard. My name is Dr. Anika Harriet, and as always, we're here to have conversations with and about women and non-binary scholars who are Black and Indigenous in STEM. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Geraldine Ezeka, and we're going to be talking about ancestral genetics. We're going to be talking about genetic sovereignty. We're going to be talking about bio ethics. Come on now, speak about it. Oof, I've been waiting to talk about this one for a minute because I have feelings, <laughs> very got strong thoughts. feelings. Lots of thoughts. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Geraldine and I are both biochemists by training. Mm -hmm. um, we work in disparate fields now, but we have a, a background in biochemistry and molecular biology. Did our PhDs together. Yes, yes we did. Sister, sister. Um, so yeah, we're really t excited to talk about a topic that's really relevant in pop culture. So I found this number, it said, this is from 2018, and they said 26 million people had participated in some sort of like, listen, your face right now, exactly. 26 million people have participated in some sort of like online ancestry testing, be it 23andMe, Ancestry.com, you name it. Now, I'm super curious, did they also identify the backgrounds, the ethnic backgrounds of the different people in this 26 million? So that's like what they say they do. And we'll we'll get into a little bit of that. But um, not all of these, not all of these companies um, have that as their primary goal. I remember when 23andMe first started out, there wasn't much around ancestry at all. Yeah. It was about um, uncovering some of those SNPs. Yeah. Remember what SNPs stand for? You want to tell, tell the audience? So a SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism that is basically one single change in a nucleotide in your DNA that may confer you to have a specific phenotype. Exactly. So translating that a little bit <laughs> for the for the, for the ladies and the babies out the there. Basically, uh, most folks know that our DNA is made up of base pairs, those letters A, T, C, and G, and that, that the sequence of those letters make up your genes. Mm -hmm. And those letters are called nucleotides. So a single nucleotide polymorphism is a single letter change that ends up changing something about you. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of these ancestry tests focused on those. And I remember one of the stories that I heard at, uh, when 23andMe first came out was that a lot of the idea was born from a like dinner, card dinner party conversation. Interesting. Where they were talking about whether or not your urine smells like asparagus after you eat asparagus. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to see if there was a snip for that. And it turns out there is a SNP, but it's not for whether or not it smells like that, it's for whether or not you could smell it. Mm. And so those are sort of the types of things I remember like 23andMe listing at first when they first came out, like quirky stuff. But there's also like disease identifying SNPs, right? There are different types of SNPs that some people may have that may confer them to be more susceptible to different types of diseases, which is incredibly important information to know. Yeah, and I think sort of the the real struggle here when you're talking about this with folks who maybe don't work in these fields is understanding that when you go to the doctor, for example, and they're doing genetic screening for disease, that's not the same, uh, you're not offered the same protection mm. that you're offered, or that you're rather not offered. When you're sending your DNA off to companies like 23andMe, yeah. Ancestry.com, I mean, we've all 
probably have heard the story of the Golden State Killer who was found decades after the crimes he committed because you know, a great nephew or something submitted their DNA Which to- Which is crazy, it's crazy. And I think that that was a story that broke and it really made a lot of people think about for the first time, like, wait a minute, what what's happening with my data once I- I mean, it's not just law enforcement agencies that have access to this type of information. I've read articles where there are scientific institutions, academic institutions that are parsing through these data sets to leverage information for different types of scientific publications. And it's just like, whoa, what type of deal you got 20, with 23andMe or AncestryDNA.com to get access to like thousands and thousands of people's data sets? Yeah. And so I do think that it's important to acknowledge that the history in this country has like stripped us mm. from a lot of our ancestral knowledges. That's real. And that there are folks wanting to reclaim that mm. and that like those, that desire shouldn't be demonized. Exactly. But the way that we're able to go about, about it. About it, yeah, that's the biggest kicker. In fact, uh, Alondra Nelson in her book, The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reconciliation and Reparations, honestly, that title really like pulls at my heartstrings every time I say it. But she referred to those people as root seekers. Yeah. These groups of people that are interested in understanding their heritage that they have been stripped away from. A lot of Eurocentric people, uh, let's, let's call it what it is. A lot of white people with Eurocentric backgrounds have that kind of Eurocentric hold yeah. where they're able to be like, oh, I'm, I, I'm from Irish descent. I'm from a Italian descent. They have some sort of connection. But unfortunately, with a lot of African-Americans that were stolen from their native land, they don't have that innate connection. So they're seeking, they're seeking their roots, these root seekers. But I think one thing that she had mentioned that is almost a surprise of why there's so many um, Black people seeking out, people of color in general, seeking out this genetic information is that the history with genetic testing and medical um, medical access for people in our communities has been historically incredibly negative. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that when you can swab your mouth at home and send it to Ancestry.com and 23andMe, for folks who don't really understand the implications mm -hmm. of the that type of data, yeah. that they really do feel empowered yeah. that their, that their uh, data is in their hands. Yeah. And that's not, really the case. And I don't think that um, enough companies are transparent about yeah, that. Yeah. And one conversation that I've heard amongst bioethicists is this idea of not only informed consent, because we all know nobody reads the terms and conditions. They just be swabbing and clicking. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen, it's the truth. It's, you're not lying. Um, and so I think that there's this idea of confirmed consent that's before they use your data in a study that you should be informed, like, hey, we're about to send this off to these people, check yes or no, Yeah. Um, as a more ethical approach to that sort of thing. Um, because the truth of the matter is, once you send that off, um, while some companies do allow you to uh, remove your genetic data from their databases, I don't think people really understand what they're giving away mm. in order to make that decision in an informed manner. So let's talk about that. What exactly are these people giving away when they are submitting their genetic information to these different sites? I mean, there's so much. So I think that there's a larger conversation to be had around like bodily autonomy. Mm. 
But when I think about this genetic data and when I listen to specifically indigenous scholars who are doing this work, one of the things that they talk about is that in the 21st century, one of the greatest resources is our personal data, mm. right? And so you made the point earlier that um, folks who look like us and who have also been affected by imperialism and colonialism yeah. are often um, stripped of their agency, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And especially when that comes to resources, yeah. right? Like the United States has broken every treaty yeah. that the, they've ever signed with indigenous communities. Wow. And all of those treaties have been broken over access to resources, right? right? And so when we talk about this genetic data that is the substance that makes you, you, as a new resource, you have to question uh, how this is different from the history of the other resources that uh, have we've been stripped of over history. Um, and I think that alone should give folks pause. Um, but I think we kind of want to talk about the science of it a little bit too. Let's get into the, the biochemists. Um, so you mentioned you read which book? Um, the Social Life of DNA, Races, Reconciliation, and Reparations by Alondra Nelson. Yeah, so I brought my book. I read uh, Fatal Invention by Dorothy Roberts, and this says, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. Mm. And I really liked that this book focused on that, that end point of recreating race, right? Mm. So I wanted to kind of talk about this idea of, like, what is race? What is race? Um, and how, how does it play a role in science? Let's get into it. So let's be real. Race made up. We made it up. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that we can look at, uh, culturally at any time point, but also historically is the fact that race is just categories. Completely. It's taxonomies. Yeah. And we create taxonomies mm -hmm. like that is inherently like what, Western science does, yeah. and race is another manifestation of that. And Just categorizing things as they see them. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so when we talk about what those categories are, they differ from country to country. Yep. You know, yep. you go elsewhere in the world presenting as yourself, and you might not be referred to as, as black. Yep. There are all sorts of terms, you know, the highly controversial um, mulatto, mm. but that's a racial category yeah. for some folks. Um, and you know, there, there is such a wealth of them that exist depending on where you are. And then also what time, right? So you can look at the US census and how many times that the race categories that you're able to check mm. have changed in the Literally boxes. Change over time. Yeah. And so um, Dorothy Roberts starts with sort of like, where did this idea of race originate, originate um, in the Western modern sense? And of course, slavery. <laughs> it's, to be surprised. it's always slavery. And so she talks about how initially there were Christian and non-Christian. Mm -hmm. And those that- Those were the races. Those were the races. Wow. Christian and non-Christian. As Europeans were beginning to enslave Africans, they justified it by saying that they were bringing Christianity to these savage, big, big word we don't use, folks. But this, that's what they said. I just find it so fascinating that colonialism loves to use religion as their stronghold to overtake people. But please proceed. Listen, <laughs> that's a whole other episode. Okay, a whole other episode. 
Um, and so as these folks who were enslaved were beginning to convert to Christianity, they were like, oh, wait, if we want to keep uh, pilfering their resources and enslaving them, we got to change up these categories because our justification isn't working anymore. And so on and so forth. Um, throughout the history of the United States is then different populations globally began to immigrate. They had to actually fight in courts to be decided as a particular race. So we had whites, we had blacks, and we had uh, native and indigenous folks initially. And then you have immigrants coming over from Asia, right? And they're saying, we're, we're white, like Caucasian, the Caucasus region of Asia. And I remember reading a court case where a judge said, okay, Caucasus region of Asia, Caucasian. I could look at you and see you're not white. Wow. Right? So, truly, we made it up. We, I mean, even the science that tried to be conceived yes. to really identify the diversity, the yes. diversion in genetic um, information between races, what You're was talking about the Human Genome Project. Of course, the Human Genome Project. What was really found to diversify, to differentiate people between races? Nothing. Absolutely. Our DNA is 99% similar to everyone in the world. And that, like, what, 0.01%? Oh, math. Difference. Yeah, 99.9% .9 the same. And 0.1% difference? Race isn't even accounted for in that. Exactly. So when we talk about the science of race, it really just becomes this taxonomy of these categories that we've already determined yeah. and trying to statistically fit folks into those categories. Um, and you know, that really makes me think of the Vanguard STEM intersectional scientific mm, method. Yeah. And it starts off with the embodied observation and that idea is that you come from a place of some type of knowledge that you bring into the work that you do. Mm -hmm. But Western science tells us that's not true. It tells us we're objective. Yeah. And so, you know, we use the ISM to describe our transformative work and its collective impact. But this theory can be applied across all science. It's, it's just how we are as people. Yeah. And so the idea that folks are coming into science and which Western biology specifically, which is like very colonial, uh, bringing in these ideas of race and then fitting their science to it. But because they are saying they're objective, you don't have to question where these correlations or why these correlations are being made. But this kind of makes me think about, okay, if we're 99.9% .9 similar, where does this variation come? Like, how are we different? Because we are different, right? Like, let's accept the fact that we are different. We just talked about in our in a past um, episode how our hair, the curly, uh, curly, wavy, kinky hair, and I use kinky as a term of pride as opposed to nappy. Never say nappy, but my hair, those those curls are tight. How that's protective yeah. against solar radiation, right? But I think that what people don't recognize is the differences in where we are, the climate areas, our environments. Those affect different epigenetic modifications, mm. um, the different um, SNPs that we incur, yeah. and that's how we get some of these 
differences that we visually see. So I love that. And I want to go from that topic um, into sort of how that manifests yeah. it within race. But mm -hmm. before we go to that, okay, yeah, I, yeah. You, you said a word there, epigenetic. What does mm -hmm. that mean? What is epigenetic? So epigenetic, so uh, Dr. Anika quickly described what our DNA genome looks like. It's a four string of letters that each represent a single nucleotide and it changes to a single nucleotide represent a SNP. However, you can also have changes to your DNA that are not necessarily changing the letter, but maybe they're changing a part of the chromatin, which is basically a bunch of DNA wrapped up. How your DNA folds. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So epi is on top of, uh -huh. right? So you got your genetics, which are not going to change. Not changing. And your epigenetics are the, the, the sort of molecular events that happen mm -hmm. on top of your genome that's already set. Mm -hmm. But the letters are the same. It just might change what the letters are doing in a sense. So I, I have a question. I know the answer, but they might not know the answer. <laughs> Can those epigenetic changes be inherited? Not necessarily, no. But sometimes they, but sometimes they, they can, can be. be. So yeah. there, there is variation it depends, there. Yeah. Depends on what they, what they are then? Yep. Great, great, great. So when we talk about that and we talk about how race manifests in science, so we've, we've said we just made that up. But when we look at how science is practiced and we look at attempts for equity within STEM, sometimes we see studies that are looking at like diabetes within yeah. the black population, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or uh, cystic fibrosis being more common amongst white folks and things or like that. Different types of cancer, different types of breast cancers being different more types of cancers amongst black communities. Exactly. And so you mentioned that there's an environmental mm -hmm. factor there as well. So can you make maybe some inference for our audiences that might not be able to connect, like how the environment and race maybe connects to this output of genetic differences? Sure, sure, because if you think about uh, Africa as a continent, right? The climate, the type of sun that exists there yeah. leads the people that are exist in these areas to increase the amount of melanin in their skin to be more protected against the UV rays. However, there are Nordic populations in very cold environments that have different SNPs that allow their, their bodies to um, exist in the cold a lot more naturally. And they're able to be a little bit more resistant to the cold through these different yeah. single nucleotide polymorphisms or epigenetic modifications. So, like, so these are like environmental. These are based on where people are living. But you can also think of things like redlining, things like food deserts that also cause these different changes to diet, mm -hmm. these different um, exclusions from things that would help people be more healthy, yeah. which cause different communities, unfortunately, usually ones of color, to be disproportionate, especially medically, and predisposed to different types of diseases. Yeah, that's definitely true. So like the environment that you live in. So we've, we've talked about redlining and the impact that it has had on the environment in these communities yeah. in our black and green episodes. Yeah. Like they're hotter, there's less uh, fresh air, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so Often even- Often by a factory. Yes, yes, exactly. Cancer alley. Come on now. So those are, those are uh, social, economic and political context yeah. that we know is imposed upon specific groups yep. Yep. that then affects their their genome. Exactly. Um, and so when we talk about like race in science, it's not necessarily validating differences 
inherent differences between race based on ancestry. Mm -hmm. It's rather maybe accounting for the social, political, historical context of the oppressions that they face mm. and the shared impact yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, so I have a quote here too, talking a little bit more about how this impacts Native and Indigenous communities. So in 2009, uh, President Obama collect, um, organized a, a convention, it's the largest gathering of tribal leaders yeah. um, in history. And Obama. in his talk, he said that Native Americans die of illnesses like tuberculosis, alcoholism, diabetes, pneumonia, and the flu at the highest rates or at higher rates. So, so people dying from the flu is wild. Pneumonia, these are all curable, preventable, treatable diseases. And so when you hear that, what do you hear? I hear lack of resources. Exactly. I hear lack of access. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, so when we talk about these racial diseases or these diseases that are linked to certain races or ethnicities, where some might uh, begin to search for like a genetic, um, genetic predisposition, yeah. while it might exist, I think that oftentimes it can be explained by exactly what you're talking about here. So folks tend to explore these differences within science. We've already said that these differences are something that we've created as sort of a doctrine of humanity. Yeah. We yeah. look at each other and we see that we're different. And so we assume there must be some sort of Genetic difference. Right, something that can be validated through science as inherent differences between us. And Dorothy Roberts, I really love that she describes this as a faith in racism mm. or a faith in race, right? It's something that we believe and therefore we structure our lives, our science, et cetera, around this. Imagine if, and I kind of hate when people say this, but like, it makes me think, it makes me wonder, imagine if people literally physically could not see color. What would that change about this faith that we have in the ways that we're all different? How? How would, how, how would we then quantify our differences? Because the most immediate way that people quantify their differences is we look different. Our skin tones are different, right? So if if everyone was colorblind, if everyone in the world was colorblind, how then would we quantify our differences? Would it be on height, based on height? Would it be based on weight? Would it be based on genetic or uh, medical predispositions? Yeah. So I love that you asked that question because I wanted to talk about um, maybe... Listen, we just tear and race down at this one. Um, I wanted to talk about our differences, right? We are both people who identify as black. Yep. Um, I prefer black to African-American. I don't know about you. I prefer black to African-American as well. I would call myself Nigerian-American before I refer to myself as African-American. Exactly. So that's what I kind of wanted to get at. So if we were to participate in the study yeah. that was looking at different um, single nucleotide polymorphisms or disease susceptibility based on race, we would fall within the same category. But can you tell me a little bit, you said you're Nigerian American, can you tell me a little bit about like that heritage for you, maybe yeah. how many generations, that sort of thing? Yeah, so my parents were both born in Nigeria um, and they actually, my dad came here when he was about 26, 27 years old to start undergrad. 
And he went back to meet my mom, had my first two older sisters in Nigeria, brought all of them here to, um, well, where I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. And we grew up here. So first generation American. Is that what that's considered? Yeah. So first generation born in America, but I still very heavily identify with my Nigerian heritage. I tell people that I was born in America, but in a Nigerian household. Um, we have dual, all of us have dual citizenship. We go back to Nigeria. We understand the language. Um, I think it's interesting because I think as someone that was born in America, but still very heavily identifies as Nigerian, I'm not, Niger I'm not American enough for the Americans. I'm not Nigerian enough for the Nigerians, but I'm still very, very certain of who I identify as. Yeah. And it's always funny having the conversations with different Americans that don't understand that, um, that, oh, I'm Nigerian. And they'll be like, where are you born? And I'll be like, America. And they're like, no, you're American. And I'm like, no. I have single nucleotide polymorphisms <laughs> that probably define my Nigerian. <laughs> well, yeah, so that's really interesting. I think that um, most folks maybe don't know that genetic ancestry, this 23andMe, Ancestry.com thing, it's not new. It's not. Um, genetic ancestry was first recorded or coined in 1937. Whoa. We know a lot of other racialized science was going on mm -hmm. in 1937, justifying eugenics and those other things. Yeah. But I want to pause. Let me reel myself in before we before we go into that. <laughs> so, black. Mm -hmm. Nigerian-American, first-generation American. I think that that's not only very unique experience, but when we talk about these other sorts of genetic factors, I think that that makes um, very discreet sort of characterization versus me, someone who, on paper, also Black. Um, my family is a family that is descendant from enslaved folks, and we know a lot about our history. So my family is from Charleston, South Carolina, and actually three in five black Americans can trace their ancestry back to Charleston oh, wow. specifically because it was one of the largest ports in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, I was raised with my great, great grandparent around, wow. my great grandparents around. I still have one living great grandmother. Wow. And so I'm fortunate in a way that a lot of other um, Black Americans who are descended from slavery or not, mm -hmm. in that I'm very well aware of my my history and my culture, Gullah Geechee, girly over here. Um, and I grew up very connected to that culture, yeah. um, which is something that I can definitely appreciate is important to me um, that a lot of folks don't have, which is why I thought it was important to make that um, distinction at the beginning, you know, those folks who are searching for their roots. And I, I do have to say, in the midst of all of my very strong opinions about the bioethics at play here, I do know that I don't have that same um, yeah. concern or worry. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wanted to bring that up because I think it really shows another underlying problem of this uh, racialized science, which mm -hmm. is that we are the same race. Yeah. We fall into the same category based on the categories given to us. Mm -hmm. We come from very, very different backgrounds, backgrounds, very different environments, mm -hmm. very different um, access to 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 resources. Good, like our our lives that we lived were very different, yeah. and that those differences, as we've already described, um, our lived experiences are very different, rather. And those differences, as we've previously described, impact your ancestry. Yeah. Um, 
And that doesn't even get into all of the categories that are not typically accounted for mm -hmm. when it comes to race, right? Uh, we talk about the continent of Africa, but the genetic diversity between regions of Africa alone are greater than between entire regions of the of the rest of the world. Exactly. Oh my goodness. And I'm so glad that you brought this up because people don't realize the just diversity in a single country, in Nigeria, for example. Sure, there's three major tribes of uh, Nigerian in within the uh, country of Nigeria, but there are so many different others. And if you think about it, in a colonial sense, right? Colonialism really just brought a bunch of people who weren't necessarily in a country together into a single country and named it. We're like, this space that we're marking out on this map, we're defining it as this thing because we decided so. So of course, all of these people who, were, who may have previously been nomads, like the Alsas in the North, or businessmen in different senses, like the Igbos in the Southwest, just have different variations of what they do, excuse me, Southeast, um, just have different variations of their lived experiences that really help define the diversity that we don't even really recognize. I mean, it's kind of quite fascinating. Yeah, not to mention the fact that you're, you're talking about this, again, arbitrary decision on categorization of yeah. people. And I think that one part that we haven't touched on is that this also kind of ignores the migratory history mm -hmm. of people. Like mm -hmm. humans, we don't stay in one place and we never have. Yeah. And so those tribes, those borders, wherever you are throughout history, they're always intermingling and yeah. mixing. Yeah. And um, to your point of these borders that were determined through colonialism, I think that the point that is made in Fatal, in Fatal Invention and um, I think that we are making here is that there is a clear attempt to take the colonial mindsets that have plagued us throughout history and translate them into modern science. Yeah. This belief system is the carryover. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's harmful, not only to folks who are marginalized, folks who stand to lose something in these spaces, but I think it's harmful to science in general, yeah, right? It makes you question the merit and the rigor of the science that we do when we are fitting it to our belief systems mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than looking for truths. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, it's really difficult to kind of think about when you're like, I am a scientist, I live in science, I breathe science, I'm a STEM creative, I identify as a person that uses science as an art form. But then when you dive deeper into kind of the history of why certain types of science are being done, it's to try to differentiate you, to yeah. try to isolate you in a sense. And I think that's really, it's disheartening in a sense. I love that, yeah, to isolate you. That really makes me think about what we do here, right? Yeah. Everything that we do here is a goal of being community-based. Yeah. So I wanted to segue um, and wrap up with maybe a different approach mm -hmm. to some of these studies, looking at Black and Indigenous scholars who are working in these places. So, so far we've mentioned resources that folks can engage with and learn more about these topics. Yeah. Dorothy Roberts, Alondra mm -hmm. Nelson, and both of the books that we read, um, I'm sure yours, I know mine, have um, lots of other scholars yep. that they interviewed and those can even, you know, you can go down quite the rabbit hole and believe me, I did. The interesting thing with Alondra's book was that 
she was kind of like really kind of focusing on, okay, African-American people, people of color engage in this genetic testing. They're root seekers. They want to understand who they are, why they are these things, what their history is. But that's just the start. It was like, this is just the beginning. What do you do with this information? So the book really focused on trying to take this, this social aspect. Now that I have this information, what do I do with it? The journey of having this information and then going down and really trying to identify this question of who am I? In a genetic sense, in a a historical sense, in an ancestral sense. Yeah, I think there's a what do you do with it at the individual level. And then when we talk about these corporations that we mentioned Mm -hmm. um, at at that corporate level too, like what are they doing with it? And even I will mention NIH, the All of Us, I believe it's called Research Project, Mm -hmm. and their goal is to create a very diverse data set of mm-hmm. genomic data that is representative of popu- of all populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have faced a lot of criticism and critique, but I'll, I'll mention that in a second. So, <laughs> yes, I don't wanna get too far ahead of myself. So I wanted to talk about community-engaged science yeah. that deals with these topics. And yeah. so I brought one from what I consider to be my home, Charleston, and that is the Um, Anson Street Burial Ground Project. Mm. So this is a project where they found a burial ground of 36, I I believe it was 36 total, I'm not sure, but they did use 36 36 samples of enslaved individuals who were buried in Anson Street. So they they were undertaking a construction project and they uncovered this unmarked burial ground of enslaved folks. And there was a local community group that included both scientists and social scientists who wanted to take on this project to um, investigate the ancestral DNA of the Gullah Geechee people and trace it back to their African roots to kind of confirm what the culture already knew um, about about their ancestry. And so they did this using community-based practices that were developed in concert with other black and indigenous scholars, where they asked folks from Charleston to submit their DNA for these projects. And they looked at the variation in these genetics over time. They also used the, ooh, I do not remember the exact name of this, but essentially the uh, records of um, cargo is what they were calling it of the transatlantic slave trade. I just got chills. <clears throat> that just that just vexed me a little bit. They were they were digitized and mm-hmm. so they were also able to use those records to confirm with their um, their genetic testing from these bodies that they were finding and from folks who are descendant from Gullah Geechee. I must ask. Yeah. Who led this research? It's okay, like, if you don't got those notes look, down, but I look, just, we, I'm we curious. We put it in the comments below because of there's a lot of folks <clears throat> that were a part of this. I'm hoping it's, I'm hoping that, you know, just there's some black people trinkled in there. Of it's course, really so, so this was led by, like, the Gullah Geechee people. So that's what I'm saying is that yeah. it was community-based because, and this is what we talk about, or this is what we mean when I, when I talk about genetic sovereignty, yeah. right? It's the same as your land sovereignty. It is the people who are there, who are impacted, have ownership over, exactly, have ownership. So it was actually, it was community led. While I say there were like scientists, it wasn't like 
a big university that immediately jumped in. It was a community organizer Mm. who came together and made a plan for how the science would then take place. Yeah, that's beautiful. Isn't it? Imagine if that happened across the U.S. for people, like for communities of color that were interested in having genetic sovereignty, for who were interested in having community-based understanding of their genetic history. Exactly. And so this was an ancestral project. It was one where they were able to trace back, um, they were able to trace back these folks' roots to West Africa. They were able to look at the bottlenecking effect in the genomic data. So I'm not sure if you know this, but the Gullah Geechee people, South Carolina, we call it the low country, but it's basically the sea islands that run from North Carolina through Florida and the culture that developed there. And so uh, as someone from that area, it's very easy to recognize sort of like the hallmarks of that culture, but also the way that they link back to your folks too. You know, we do (laughs) sweet grass basket weaving. Um, We're rice farmers, indigo farmers. Um, Listen, the red beans and rice, that's, that's that's the jollof. I was about to it's say, because you know jollof and some cassava, like just even being farmers, right? I remember going back to Nigeria, we went to the village and there were literally cassava farmers all around us, yeah. you know? So it's cool to see the intersection, the overlaps between what was being done here and what was being done in the continent of Africa. Yeah, and I mean, you don't lose your ancestral knowledge when you're displaced, right? So those were folks who were coming from West Africa, bringing that knowledge and adapting it to what they had here. Mm. Um, And so this project found a lot of things that, as someone from that culture, it's like, we already knew this. Of course. But I think that that's also like the larger point too, is that, so often science seeks to define and quantify what we already know through our oral histories. So they were confirming the things that the Gullah Geechee people already know. And this, these are papers that are coming out this year. Wow. So the one that I was referencing came out January 2023, Whoa. where they, they uh, spoke about their approach to this. Um, and then in addition to that, they, they talked about the fact that you can look at mitochondrial DNA, right? Which we know is only inherited from your mother. mother. And yeah. look at the way that that's in, inherited and see specifically that when you looked at these folks uh, in 23andMe, everyone's always so surprised when you're, when you're black and it says you got like 15% European DNA in there. And it's like, what do you think that we're doing? Um, we, we know. And so even things like that, when they looked at mitochondrial DNA, they were able to see specifically that the European ancestry that it exists in these folks was coming from men. Whoa. So, I mean, pretends to be surprised. So we know exactly. Again, we already knew. Exactly. But thanks for writing the paper about it. (laughs) Literally. Um, And to that point, I wanted to talk about also some indigenous scholars that are doing this work and kind of in there because you and I can't truly provide that perspective. It's not our experience. And so as we continue to discuss this through other Vanguard STEM content um, this month, I did want to bring in specifically some indigenous scholars, but I, I couldn't do this. First of all, I couldn't have this conversation without them. Yeah. But I definitely didn't want to do the show and not mention a few of these folks specifically. So the huge one for me, Keola Fox, he is an indigenous scholar 
who really champions this, this sort of genetic sovereignty um, and was really my first interaction with these concepts and learning how these communities were taking on these bioethical questions. Um, another person is Crystal Sosi. And so together I've seen them both promoting organizations like Native Biodata. So that's a 501c3, a nonprofit that is, um, it's a research institute led by indigenous scientists. Yeah, and the idea is to return these resources the data mm. back to the communities who can do something with it, mm. right? So when we talk about things like, I said I would come back to this, the NIH All of Us Research Project, they're creating this large database of uh, diverse genomic data. For what? For who? That's the question, right? Because it goes on to inform science, but we already know who science caters to, right? Mm -hmm. We know that white men are most likely to have multiple NIH grants. Yep. Yeah. We know that communities of color, black and indigenous folks in particular, are more likely to study science that impacts their communities, but they're also more likely to not be funded to do that science. Oh, yeah, I was about to say the exact same thing. So when we talk about these projects, it's about who they're serving, right? Mm -hmm. But I think what gets lost even in that is that science, the way that we do it, is inherently colonial. Yeah. Right? There's this idea mm -hmm. of ownership, mm -hmm. and that doesn't exist yeah. within the indigenous community. It's about stewardship, mm -hmm. which is very different. And so these scholars um, with native biodata, and then there's also um, indigidata workshops where they bring in students to carry on this work. Wow. Right? Literally leaving a ladder down. Exactly. Stewardship. Stewardship. Truly. They're yeah. saying if we are going to take this data and use it for our communities, yeah. we're not going sovereignty. to, it's not going to be about ownership. It's yeah. about stewardship. Yeah. How is it going to be influencing and impacting our communities? How are we going to legitimize the things that we already know mm -hmm. about who we are? Mm -hmm. Right, those ancestral knowledges, those oral histories, they mean something. But when we sit and you know, I'm sitting reading this PNAS paper that is telling me things that I have known my whole life. Okay. <laughs> you know, and and putting the science back in the hands of the people um, who who we're talking about. Yeah. You know, we're talking exactly. about folks and leaving them out of the conversation. Ooh. Yeah. And just empowering these people to also be empowered by the science that's about them. Exactly. So I'm really excited to continue the series in conversation specifically with Indigenous scholars who have a lot to teach us all. And I'm excited to learn from these Indigenous scholars as well. Yeah. We hope you are too. We hope y'all are too. Uh, thanks for joining us for another conversation. And we hope you stay in conversation with us. Thank you. Thank you.